0: web at WAGP.net. This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open. And if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be a first-time listener here at 88.7, we have new listeners who come online every day, and if you are, we would love to hear from you. If you have a specific question as it relates to God's Word, that's what we do for the next hour. Maybe you're studying a passage that you're challenged by, or you have a theological, biblical question, uh, you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net, or you can call us live and you can dictate your question, or if you're comfortable, you can go on the air. And that phone number is 843-525-1859. All right, Rick, we've had just a ton of email questions that have already come in, and we maybe we'll knock off some of those. We will give live callers preference this morning, so if you have a question you don't mind going on the air live we'll give you preference otherwise we're going to begin to tick off many of these email questions that have come in and by the way I should say that sometimes people email a question and they're at work and they can't be polite in and, and a good you know testimony at work by listening uh so you can always listen to it later it's posted uh, a little bit later on
0: all in, right indeed it is and um, You're absolutely correct. We've got numerous emails that have come in. One from Jamie in Seattle, Washington. She writes, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned an area where John Piper was off in his theology regarding Israel, I believe. Uh, I so appreciate your shepherd's heart in protecting the flock. I know you take plans to walk the fine line of discernment and warning, but also acknowledge that there are many who stray from truth in some areas, but are still brothers in Christ. My question is about John Piper's gospel message. He has stated many times this idea of final salvation, which must follow justification. And without this final salvation of obedience, you will not enter heaven. I've heard him say similar things many times, and it certainly adds works to salvation, no longer faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, I'll include a couple of recent quotes from his blogs. I just have trouble saying he shares the gospel accurately. I wonder what your opinion is of, this idea of final salvation after justification. Seems that it takes the free out of salvation being a free gift, Uh, Romans 5.15, 6.23, and Ephesians 2.8.9. Thank you for this radio ministry as well. And uh, so this is one of his blog entries. He writes, this being John Piper, so we should not speak of getting to heaven by faith alone in the same way we are justified by faith alone. Love the Fruit of faith is the necessary confirmation that we have faith and are alive. We won't enter heaven until we have it. There is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. Essential to the Christian life and necessary for final salvation is the killing of sin, Romans 8:13, and the pursuit of holiness. Hebrews 12:14 again, John Piper's Desiring God blog, blog from September 13th of last year.
1: All right these are fair questions, so let me try to tick them off. First, let me uh, respond to the initial comment that you made um, concerning something I said about John Piper. Obviously, I'm preaching on the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation has had basically uh, three or four different approaches to it. There's what we call the preterist view, praedur from the Latin that means past, and the preterist view says that The whole book of Revelation is history, that it was all fulfilled before 70 A.D., with the exception, of course, of the coming uh, of Jesus Christ from heaven. There is a historical view that, for instance, Martin Luther held to, and that says that uh, the book of Revelation is being fulfilled during the history of the church and it will culminate with the Second Coming. So, for instance, Luther spoke to the fact that he thought the Pope in his day was the literal, actual Antichrist. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith reflects that. It says, I think it's Article 16, but don't quote me on that. You can look it up. But it says that the Antichrist is the Pope of Rome. And they, of course, when they wrote that, thought that it was actually the Pope who was reigning at that particular view. That's a historical approach to Revelation. Uh, there is a futuristic approach, which basically says that uh, it hasn't happened yet, with the exception of chapters 2 and 3, uh, That, and unless there's a prophecy in chapter uh, 2 and 3, and there are a few in there, uh, but it's, uh, it's futuristic from chapter 4 on out. And that's actually the divine outline of the book, right? The things which are, that's chapter 1 and he records the vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ that he sees. Write the things, the things that are past. Then he says, write the things that are. And then he writes of seven churches, and Christ gives seven epistles, seven letters to seven churches that were alive, functioning uh, during that time in church history. And then write the things that will take place, metatata, after these things. And so when you come to Revelation one twice in the same verse, After these things, beginning the verse, after these things, ending the verse, you know it's like a a neon light flashing. We are now in the futuristic section of the Revelation. So here's the thing. There are some people like Piper who are amillennial. Amillennialists say that there is no millennium, that Jesus is not coming back to literally rule on the earth for a thousand years. Now, there are some people who are premillennial, that is, Christ comes back before the thousand-year kingdom, pre-millennialists. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. But they debate on the events that will precede the second coming, whether the rapture takes place before the tribulation, in the middle, at the end, and so forth. There's some other quirky positions within those two points. But they recognize that Christ is going to come back to the earth and will rule and reign for a thousand years. By the way, that's what most of the church fathers held. They believed that Messiah would come back to the earth, just like it says in Zechariah 14, and uh, just as the promises that were made to the people of Israel. Well, there's a guy in the history of the church, he was one of the late church fathers by the name of Origen, and he didn't want to upset Rome by saying that there was going to be a king, namely Jesus, who was going to come and usurp all kings. Uh, That might mean uh, he'd have his head cut off. And so he began to propagate a millennial theology. Augustine adopted the same thing. And so on both of those men's uh, thoughts were the fact that God was done with the people of Israel. So there was no future for Israel. And they'd say that, you know, because of Israel's unbelief, that the promises of a coming kingdom and so on and so forth, it's not going to happen. And again, that spiritualizes Scripture, and it misunderstands the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham when he put him to sleep. Abraham had nothing to do with the covenant except the the fact that he and his lineage was going to be recipients of it. But in terms of promises that he made, it was a unilateral covenant. So John Piper is an amillennialist. He sees no future for Israel. So in his thinking, Uganda is no more significant than the land of Israel. He sees no significance in God regathering the Jewish people back into the land. He sees no significance uh, for the fact that there are Jewish people who want to rebuild a temple. Uh, he thinks that um that, that that has no relevance to today, and that what you read in Revelation all took place before 70 A.D. Look, the problem with that hermeneutic, that principle for interpreting the Word of God, is you are not consistent in how you approach Scripture. How do we know how to interpret the Scripture? Does somebody just say, well, I think you should interpret it this way, and someone else says, well, I think you should interpret it this way? Actually, God within the Bible contained the principles on how to interpret his word. How do I know that? Because you see different writers interacting with one another. And so, for instance, Daniel, uh, in Daniel, the ninth chapter, he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah makes a prophecy that the people would be carried away for a period of 70 years. And Daniel recognizes that the 70 years is almost up. But what is he doing? He's literally interpreting a prophecy that Jeremiah makes. And so, when you read New Testament writers as well, interfacing with Old Testament writers, they literally interpret the Bible. Now, by a literal interpretation, maybe it's better to say a grammatical interpretation because that phrase, literal interpretation, is often misunderstood. But we are not denying that there are metaphors and similes and so forth throughout the scripture. We're not ignoring that. There are symbols throughout the revelation, but once we understand what the symbol means, then we literally believe it. And so God contained within the word of God how to interpret the word of God. So Augustine comes along and, you know, he has a very low view of Jewish people. Um, some of you who are listening, maybe you've been with me or you've been yourself to Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the so called Holocaust memorial there in. Jerusalem. And the very first exhibit that you see when you walk into Yad Vashem and you begin the exhibit portion is an exhibit on Christianity and how Christians have viewed Jews. And the very first quote that you have is by St. Augustine. And it's just like disgusting, the things that he said about the Jews. Just like Martin Luther said, some disgusting things about the Jews Just as John Calvin, who people, you know, like wave his flag like he's uh, the most righteous man who's ever walked on the earth. He said some awful things that he had to apologize to God for, I have no doubt, when he met the Lord in heaven. Was he a believer? Yes. Is John Piper a believer? He's a godly man. Does he misunderstand eschatology? You better believe it. He is really distorted in his view of end times. He espouses replacement theology. So is he a heretic? No, he's a brother in Christ. He's a godly brother. But his theology is uh, more rooted in Jonathan Edwards than it is in, in, in I believe, a biblical hermeneutic. Uh, it's more rooted in John Calvin than it is in a biblical hermeneutic. And so that that's discouraging to me because he has an influence on a lot of young people right now. And I meet a lot of young pastors who, who you know, are Piperites and— I I think, in an unhealthy way. Um, Now, in fairness to him, I think maybe you've misunderstood what he's trying to communicate, Uh, but I read it, and I don't really have any problem with the blog that you quoted. What he's basically saying is we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. He would be the first to affirm that. But what he is trying to counter is we live in a day when people say, well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, and it really doesn't matter how I live. So you reference Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and those are beautiful verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man boast. But then the next verse says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto or to do good works. So we're not saved by works, we're saved to do good works. And so Piper's argument is, is a reasonable one, is that we live in a day where people say, well, I'm saved, but they don't demonstrate that salvation through a changed life. But listen, uh, the Scripture teaches you can know that you're saved at the moment of conversion, where maybe you haven't done much of a demonstration in terms of mature fruit. It takes time to grow into mature. And that's why in the New Testament, there's often what we call immediate baptism. Someone was saved and, yep, there's a there's a running brook right there. There's a pond right there. There's a, 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 a Jewish uh, mikvah. And let, let's go ahead. We'll baptize you right now. And they did that. Why? Because they took them at their confession. That's not to say that everyone that they baptized that confessed their faith was a genuine believer. Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer. He was baptized, but it turns out Peter says you're still in the gall of iniquity and the bondage of iniquity and the gall of sin. So he obviously was not yet truly converted, and Peter called him on that. Um, People often say we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, John Calvin is credited with that statement, but I've yet to see where John Calvin wrote that. But did he teach that? Yes. Yes, he taught that, Uh, and really any good Bible teacher will, that if you are saved, there will be some evidence of that conversion. And the first evidence of conversion the New Testament gives is you're willing to openly, publicly confess Jesus before men. And people in the first century typically did that through baptism. So uh, I want to be fair to John Piper. You know, there's a lot of great things that he said, and uh, I, I just think he has a warped eschatology. And I I don't, you know, say that to criticize him as a person, but his eschatology, his doctrine of last things actually feeds, and it's not his intention, he's not in the least bit anti-Semitic, but it feeds anti-Semitism. If God's done with the Jew and we don't really have to have a great respect for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, that feeds an anti-Semitic spirit. And so what did Hitler do? Hitler, during the Second World War, had his people go in to the German Lutheran churches and they had him read Luther's words. And some of Luther's words, you know, were really quite appalling. And he used that to garner the um, support of the German church in order to try to get them to you know, uh, follow his ways and espouse his thinking, and that that's not good that obviously was very, very 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 evil so um, again these are these are important things and, and again, it's just like I don't discredit Martin Luther, he's one of my heroes, so to speak, and he was willing at great cost to uh, deal with some difficult things in his life and uh, in spite of all the opposition that the Roman Catholic Church had against him, he, he stood for Christ. But he also had a warped eschatology, and it came out of Roman Catholicism. That's the root of amillennialism. It's Roman Catholicism. That's where it comes from. Uh, so the Roman Catholic Church said, we're the one true church, uh, and uh, God is done with Israel. But look, for instance, uh, Calvin said this, the Jews are a rotten and unbending people whose obstinance deserves that they be oppressed without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. He said that. John Calvin said that. That's terrible. Listen to what Martin Luther said. What then shall we Christians do with this damned rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemies. Let me give you some honest advice. First, their synagogues should be set on fire. Whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians that we are not wittingly tolerating or approvals of proving such public lying, cursing, and blasphemy. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies, in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land is they boast, but miserable captives, as they complain incessantly before God and with bitter wailing. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and talmuds, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat to death to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden. I could go on. This is disgusting to me. This is what Hitler read in the German churches. Now, granted, at this time in Germany, uh, (coughs) excuse me, most of the churches were more, (coughs) excuse me, more Christianized than they were born again. And so a lot of people fell into that trap. Not all the German people did. Uh, There were some obviously deeply godly committed German people who rejected what Hitler taught, and hats off to them. But as a whole, the nation hated and despised, and they, they took the words of Luther. And those are terrible, terrible words. So to me, this is what it feeds, replacement theology. It feeds anti-Semitism when we should be praying for the peace of Israel and we should expect God to literally fulfill the prophecies to the nation of Israel for the second coming just as he literally fulfilled the prophecies for the first coming. God used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming. God is going to use the Jewish people, to bring about the second coming, period. That's just what the Scripture says. And we don't want to, you know, uh, blaspheme what God has revealed. And so, anyway, I I hope that helps and will get you thinking. Uh, I've covered this um, in some of my sermons. I think if you listen to my sermon on Revelation chapter 12, I deal with some of these issues, and I deal with the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant, and that's the critical factor here. The Abrahamic covenant, it's unconditional in nature, and we have to understand that. All right, Rick, let's go on to the next question.
0: All righty, 843 if you have a question on today's Bible line, and Denise from Beaufort would like to know, does God have a sense of humor? <laughs>
1: Well, I'd say uh, perhaps maybe the best indication that God does have a sense of humor is that he created us in his image, and we're so messed up. Uh, But but lay that aside. There are uh, times in the Word of God when, uh, you know, God would uh, do something in a way that kind of makes you chuckle. Maybe an example that comes to mind is when the Israelites were using the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. And they took it into battle, if you remember, and the Philistines ended up, you know, capturing it and uh, placing it in the temple of the idol Dagon. Remember, Dagon his statue ended up toppling over, it went head first at one point, flat before the face of the Ark, and so they sent it back. And the next morning, there he was again, but this time he had his hands and his head cut off as a symbol. So, so God put Dagon in in submission. Uh, to his ark. That, that, that's somewhat humorous, I think, you know, yet it's very serious at the same hand. Um, So there are times, for instance, when God, by the Spirit, uh, communicates humor. Remember Elijah there on top of Mount Carmel. Uh, Mount Carmel is a magnificent place. And when we go to Israel, we always go to Mount Carmel. And by the way, if you're listening, because I have people ask me all the time, when are you going to Israel God willing, we're planning to take a group in September of 2019. And if you go to searchtheScriptures.org, you can download the brochure. But remember, Elijah, he said, well, where, where, where's Baal? Maybe he's off using the bathroom. I mean, it's really it, that, that again, the spirit of God inspired that to be to be brought into the text of Scripture. Anyway, there's um, there's a number of examples we could give, but yes, God has a sense of humor, but it, it's done as a teaching tool, uh, not just the laugh for the sake of laughing. But God, God gave us laughter. Remember, we're made in His image, and we laugh. And so um, God made us. He, he speaks in Proverbs about how humor is a good thing, and how it's good for our bones and Proverbs and so forth. So, uh, yet there's a seriousness and a soberness about God's character that we must not ignore.
0: Very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding.
1: Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
0: Good morning, Dr. Brogan. This is Anthony. How are you doing?
1: Hey, good, Anthony. How can we help today? You still there? Yes, sir. Live in the well.
0: Oh, okay. I can barely hear you, Pastor. Well, question. You can hear me good?
1: Yeah. Coming uh, through loud and clear, uh, Anthony.
0: Okay. You can hear me?
1: Yes, sir. Loud and clear.
0: Uh, okay. Uh, Pastor, is Is there a difference between, and I'm pretty sure it is, what is the difference between being filled with the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God coming upon you like what he did to Samson? I guess when Samson needed strength, did the Lord just come upon him then with the Spirit of God? Uh, Is there a difference? And I'm going to listen
1: to you. All right, that's a great question. I I think I need to precede it by saying that uh, Old Testament saints have a different relationship to the Spirit of God than we do. And I taught a course on pneumatology. Pneumatos is the Spirit, and so pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so I have a whole course on it. It's at searchthescriptures.org, and we deal in that course with the Old Testament believers' relationship to God's Spirit. He didn't even deal with everyone in the same manner. Uh, There was a special group of people. They're called the prophets, and God's Spirit would speak through them. He would come upon them. Uh, There were some of God's anointed, like King David, where he saw Saul uh, because of sin, where the Spirit of God left him. He saw the Spirit of God. Somehow there was a visible expression of the Spirit of God leaving Saul, just like there was a visible expression at Christ's baptism of the Spirit of God coming upon Jesus. Now, what that visible expression was with Saul, we're not told, but David was able to discern that he could see the Spirit leaving him. And of course, after he commits the sin with Bathsheba, he prays, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's an Old Testament prayer, because Unlike the old covenant believers, when we are born again, and this is a promise of the new covenant, and Jesus interfated with Nicodemus, he said, you know, you're the, you're the teacher of the Jews and, and you don't get that, uh, that you need to be born again. He, he said, there's a sense Nicodemus that you should get it in, in what respect, and that he interfaced with the old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus then says in the next verse, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. So he goes from the first person pronoun to the first singular to the first person plural. Why? Because at that point, Jesus is calling him on the map as the teacher of Israel in the prior verse. You should have known these things. Why? Because what I'm teaching, I'm teaching with what the prophet said about the coming of the Spirit. Passages like Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36. So we have a unique relationship with the Spirit. The moment we're born again, he comes to live inside of us. He never leaves us. Uh, He can't leave us like he left Saul. So what David prayed, no new covenant saint should pray, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me, and that he's not going to physically actually leave us. He is sealed in us until the day of redemption. Now, that's not to say that while he may be living in us, he is not filling us. And so the Bible makes a distinction between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. But with that said, Samson, under the old covenant, he was one of those recipients who had a unique relationship to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit didn't do with um, the vast majority of the people uh, that he did with, say the 70 or with the prophets or when he gave Samson great strength. Um, With that said, when you come into the new Testament, you see, for instance, in Acts chapter four, there's a prayer meeting that's going on. And remember, Uh, These guys had been out preaching the gospel. Uh, Peter had given his second sermon, and uh, as a result, some guys were arrested. Uh, The the leaders are very upset with them uh, because, you know, 5,000 men, excluding women and children, you know, come to faith. Uh, They're arrested. They end up being released. And so then they have this prayer meeting and their prayer meeting is recorded in the second half of Acts 4. And so, um, of course, their response to those who arrested them is whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about that which we've seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened for the man was more than 40 years old in whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And if you remember, that was the uh, basis for the second sermon. Uh, They meet this lame beggar uh, going into the temple, and they say, silver and gold, we have not, but in the name of Christ, get up and, and walk. And so they're threatened, they're released. And then when they're released, it says they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them when they heard this, or the, their companions, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord, O Lord, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And so they, they know Scripture well enough. They're able to quote passages like Exodus 20, and, and when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God, and, and, and then it says, um, uh, why do the Gentiles rage? And they quote another Old Testament text, and for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, uh, along with the Gentiles, and how they crucified him, and so forth, and so on. And, and uh, so then it says, the conclusion, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So what's interesting is before this starts, they're filled with the Spirit. They're threatened. They go to God with their threats. They acknowledge first who God is, that he is great, that he is sovereign, that he created the heavens and the earth, and these people who are threatening him are just a part of that creation, so he's over them, and that even though they did evil to God's Son, it happened according to the predetermined plan and power of God because God had prophesied it and um, they cast this uh, fear upon them, and then God fills them again. Now I thought they were already filled. They are, but they are filled afresh for a new challenge. So, for instance, sometimes when I step into the pulpit, I'll say, Lord, you know, fill me, anoint me with your spirit today. Now, when I walk into that pulpit, I want to make sure I'm already filled with the spirit, but then I'm asking for God's power for that special task that's in front of me uh, where I'm going to open God's Word for the next hour and preach it and I need His strength uh, because to preach in the Spirit is physically exhausting. Uh, Some have likened it to a marathon, um, and I do it twice on Sunday morning, and I don't give a 20-minute message. I usually preach for, for 60 minutes, and you need God's strength, and you need His power. Otherwise, the words, too, fall just on deaf ears. So there's what we might call those special tasks where You're in a situation, and all of a sudden, you know, you you shoot up that prayer gram to God like Nehemiah does. And and in his heart, Nehemiah is praying as he approaches the king, and, Lord, I need your special help right now. And there's that special unction of the Spirit that he gives at that moment. So there are some parallels between the relationship that old covenant saints had and what we have, but there are also some very— distinct differences. Now, that's the short answer. I think I have a 10-week course online on the doctrine of the Spirit. Uh, that's at searchthescriptures.org. It's part of our Institute of Biblical Studies, and um, you might find that helpful. Great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All righty. Our next caller thanks you, first, for, first of all, for your ministry and would like to know the following. First, please clarify James five nineteen and 20. Is this talking about believers? And then second, in Revelation three fifteen and 16, please explain who Jesus Christ is addressing.
1: All right, let me go to James 5 first. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He's speaking about a Christian. And he's speaking about a Christian who in one sense is a saint, but on the other hand, he is a sinner and that he has been caught up in some kind of a sin. And when he speaks about him saving his soul from death, he is not talking about eternal death because once we're saved, we are eternally secure, but he is speaking about physical death. And there are expressions of God's discipline that are of great severity that come not just on any old sin, but sin that brings great harm not only to the person who's committing it, but to his testimony into the cause of Christ. And that is the most severe form of expressed discipline that God gives in the New Testament. And so in 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul is dealing with the Corinthians, and some of them were getting even drunk at the Lord's table. And he says, listen, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you are asleep, meaning some of you have died. In other words, they met physical death because of habitual sin. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, God and God will give life to the one who does not commit a sin leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. So here, John dealing with the same subject in first John five. Again, he's dealing there with physical death, the greatest expression of God's discipline that can come upon a believer. Um, So I, I think sometimes we downplay you know, what God is actually like, and we just think, oh, God's my buddy, and, you know, I don't really need to fear him, and because I'm saved, and perfect love casts out all fear, and you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, and God's Word is is clear. So he says, my brothers. Uh, That's a term that he's using here to describe a true believer, And he's already actually dealt with some who were sick and uh, under the discipline of the church. And he affirms that uh, if they go to the elders of the church and the elders recognize that there's genuine repentance, that that person can be physically healed, that God can lift his disciplinary hand off of that individual. Anyway, great question. I appreciate it very much. Let's go to the next one.
0: Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question for Dr. Carl Brogy, who is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort and Christine, who also happens to live in Beaufort, would like to know in the Bible, it says that the dead in Christ shall rise. But is that the case with people who have been cremated? Will they be in a bodily form? Please explain.
1: Yes, they will be in a bodily form. So just step back for just a moment. Now, cremation is a subject in itself, should Christians cremate? And sometimes people have heard me preach on this, and then they say, oh, I'm going to get cremated. Will you do my funeral? Of course I will. You're, you're one of my sheep. But if you want to know, if you're asking me, what does God's Word teach in reference to what we do with the body, Um, the scripture is very clear that you're not to cremate. Now you can go online, you watch some guy who, you know, some pastor give a little YouTube and say, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And most of those pastors I've heard have sloppily handled God's word. And the burden of proof for them to show otherwise is upon them to demonstrate that cremation is a form of burial or a form of disposal of the body that we should take. I know some people cremate and they, the ashes there in the living room up on the mantelpiece or more often than not, they spread the ashes And somewhere like the fish. So we'll put them out there in the Beaufort River or whatever, you know, all kinds of things. And I'm, I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying that that's the way people think. But <clears throat> God gave us a pattern in Scripture. There are some things that we do by example, not by direct command. For instance, the office of deacon is a New Testament office. You don't find it in the Old Testament. You find the office of elder, you don't find the office of deacon. It's a, it's a New Testament office. Why do we have deacons today? Because there's a command to have deacons? No, we do it by example. There's an example in Acts 6. There's an assumption because God gives a series of qualifications for a deacon of what he should look like. And I say he because it is a male office. I know there are some who have deaconesses, but that's a stretch. And the Phoebe passage and others, I think, are mishandled. But lay that aside. Uh, That's not the focus of this question, but we do it by example uh, because God gives us that example. We follow it. And so the churches, uh, like in Philippians 1-1, He addresses the elders and the deacons who are there in the city of Philippi, two New Testament ongoing offices that we have today. Again, uh, when we deal with the subject of cremation and burial, the example that God gave us is that we are to bury our loved ones. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, they were all buried. Joseph knew that they were going to be in a period of slavery. And so he said, look, just take my box, take my box of bones and make sure I'm buried in the promised land. One, that was a great expression of faith. He believed the promises that God made were going to be specifically fulfilled. And so some 400 years later, after the slavery is over, a prophecy that God had made to Abraham, that they would be in a land, a foreign land, they'd be there for 400 years. And then when the um, <clears throat> then when the iniquity of the Amorites is fulfilled, when they've had every possible chance to repent and they've reached the brim of God's patience and not one more drop of patience can be added, then God will send his people into the promised land. And they would deal with the Amorites, but not because God didn't love the Amorites. He gave them a chance to repent. But you see God's people being buried. God himself does a funeral. It's in the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. So again, if I wanted to follow the example of God himself, what would I do? Well, I'd want to do what God did. So here's God who um, deals with Moses' body. It's a powerful chapter if you consider it. Um, Let me just read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea and the Negev and the plain and the valley of Jericho. And then the Lord said, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. God had told him because of a prideful moment that he had that he was not going to enter into the land of promise. And he, who's the he? Goes back to Yahweh in verse 5. That's the nearest antecedent. And he, God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. So God himself buried Moab. So if you want an example, there it is. And Paul in the New Testament assumes that burial is God's way of disposal. Uh, John the Baptist was buried uh, without a head, but nonetheless he was buried. Uh, We discover that Ananias and Sapphira two disobedient Christians who met God in an early death, kind of going back to a prior question from James and comments I made from 1 John 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, they're buried. Uh, Nonetheless, disobedient believers, but they are buried. Uh, You assume all the way through 1 Corinthians 15 by the illustration that every Christian in the first century church was buried. Jews today, um, there was a crematorium that someone tried to start a couple years ago in Israel, and some people burned it down. They said, it's not going to happen in this country. You won't find a Jew who's cremated. Jewish people are buried. Why? Because that's clearly what God's Word illustrates. Now, with that said, and let me just give you a little history. 1876 is the first cremation in the United States, and it was performed by Unitarians, uni, meaning one, they affirm the oneness of God, but they denied his triunity. And so Unitarians are theological heretics. And today, now we have groups like Unitarian Universalists, and just they promote all kinds of wicked, evil things. With that said, Unitarians, uh, who denied the, uh, the, the doctrine of uh, Christ and the Trinity and so forth, and the doctrine of the resurrection, because they wanted to defy what god had written in his word they're the first to perform cremation it was their way of raising their puny little fist in the face of god almighty and say eh, see what you can do with this we just turn the body into ash that's such mockery to god so for a long time in this country no one would even consider cremating their loved ones why because they didn't even want to be associated with the Unitarian movement that denied the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. And so as time has progressed and more and more Americans are just totally ignorant of God's word, they do things that are in more conformity with the world's way than with God's way. Some cremate. They have another procedure they use in Western Europe where they They boil the body, I mean, at incredible temperatures. And when you're done, you basically have a glass of water. It was what it looks like. I guess you can go home and pour it on your plan. I don't know. But um, (laughs) in either case, you know, they boil the body into oblivion. There's actually a few states now in America that have adopted that practice. Uh, But God's way is to bury. Now, let's back up just a little bit. Suppose your loved one, was uh, on a cruise ship and he fell off the side of the cruise ship like someone did a few months ago, and they could never find his body. Does that fella exist? Not anymore. He's been eaten by fish. Even his bones are gone. I mean, he's a he's he's gone. He he's history. Suppose your loved one is in a jet that blew up. I did. A, I've done did a funeral some years ago for. Uh, a Marine whose jet blew up into oblivion after a refueling air accident. They could never find his body. Uh, Well, um, you know, is that a problem for God? Certainly not. And so, and by the way, do you think when your loved one is cremated, your good old Uncle Fred, he said he wanted to be cremated, and they hand you that little urn of ashes, you think that's all Uncle Fred? I'm telling you, friend, go visit if you, if they'll let you, but I don't think they'll probably let you, but I have friends who are in the funeral business and one former member who runs a funeral business in North Dakota. You you think that that's just uncle Fred. You think they go in there with a vacuum cleaner into that little oven and they get every single ash out from the previous cremation. Look, they, they, they get the broom and they sweep it out. And, and then of course some uncle Fred, I guess is in maybe the vacuum cleaner if they vacuum, um, But, you know, who knows how many people are in that little urn that you have. And then, again, back up again. And do you think most people are consistent in the disposal of the body? Let's say uh, a three-year-old dies. You think they're going to cremate that little three-year-old? It's almost unthinkable for the parents. I've, I've done over 500 funerals and, unfortunately, a number of children. It's unthinkable for the parent to take their little boy or girl and say we're going to burn him in an oven and then just have his ashes spread somewhere. No, they don't, they don't do that. So there the people who practice cremation aren't even consistent. And then just practically. And again, I've done hundreds of funerals when there's an urn up in front. Sometimes there's not even an urn or a little box. The new they've gone to a kind of a box thing now more recently. Uh, some have urns that they request and then some have little square boxes and Joe's in there and whatever. And do you think that um, that funeral has as much punch as when there's a body there? I can tell you it just doesn't. You have a body there, even if it's a closed casket, and there's just something about the presence, the physical presence of the human body that God made. Paul assumes in 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to bury your loved ones. And that's what we should do. So you say, well, it's in my will to uh, cremate. Well, change your will. Change your will. Do it God's way. You say, well, it's a little more expensive. Look, it's your last will and testament. Um, You're going to have some family members who haven't been to an affair since the last wedding, but they're going to show up at your funeral. And some of them are lost. And you want every opportunity possible to try to win them to the Lord Jesus. So it's not a problem is what I'm trying to say in the resurrection doesn't matter if you're blown up with with an you could put in an atomic bomb between the lapels of your suit and God will find that body and he'll raise it up so it's not an issue any more than giving a heart or a kidney or your corneas uh to science or for some recipient to receive them It's not a problem at all, so all
0: right all right very good eight four three five two five one eight five nine if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, we had a caller who would like to know why you feel that Joel Osteen's preaching is dangerous.
1: Because he's a heretic. That's why. And I'm not alone in that. Someone mentioned John Piper earlier. He's called him a heretic. Some have mentioned John MacArthur earlier. He's called him a heretic. I only had to hear him about twice, and I thought this guy is not a believer. He is not a believer. He has muddled the gospel um, he has created a, a message that is no gospel at all. He's prosperity theology, that God's desire for you is to be healthy and wealthy. Um, I don't know how many millions he's at right now in terms of what his net worth is, and that's not necessarily a criticism, criticism in and of itself. Some people inherit money, and they go into the ministry, and nothing wrong with that. But um, once again... He, um, you know, has a little uh, phrase that he adds at the end, if you don't know Jesus, just invite him into your heart today, and he doesn't really preach the cross, and he preaches a real good feel-good message, and sometimes, you know, uh, when he's confronted, like, straight, right at, you know, face-to-face, and you find out, like, for instance, when uh, he had an opportunity on Larry King Live to say that Jesus was the only way. Well, you know, I'm not to judge, and I don't know how we can say that Jesus is the only way. And, you know, and look, the mouth speaks what's in the heart. And it wasn't until they got thousands of letters from people, Why, that's not what I really meant. Well, what did you mean? Is Jesus the only way to heaven or not? And then, of course, Joel Osteen, why don't you talk about sin, Joel? You know, what's your problem? Well, people here, you know, they they feel bad so often throughout the week. I I don't believe I should preach about sin. Well, how can you preach the whole counsel of God and not preach about sin? And he doesn't really preach a divine rescue from judgment. What he preaches is, is a self-improvement plan. That's That's what he's doing. And his message may seem sweet and attractive and pretty and, And it comes with this million-dollar smile and all kinds of feel-good, motivation, self-help, guru kind of junk. But it's not Bible. You see, and the problem is, here's the problem is that, and now, again, I don't know who asked this question. But if they watched one sermon from beginning to end and they could not discern that this guy was a fake, then it tells me that they don't know their Bible very well. And of course, Dr. Billy Graham said that in his judgment, you know, 90 to 95% of the true Christians in America, the real born-again ones, haven't grown. They've remained baby Christians. And that's the sad state of the American church. So I'm sure there are some born-agains who are in Joel's church, but there's a lot of lost people there. But listen, a true man of God does not avoid any topic, especially ones that deal with sin and morality just because people don't want to hear it, you know, and true men of God don't emphasize material success and positive emotions over the truth. Um, he's a fake. He's a fake. He's a phony. He's a false prophet. You should be praying, if you care for his soul, for his conversion because he's leading a lot of, a lot of people down the wrong way.
0: Okay, we got about three and a half minutes left. Time, I think, to answer this one. A caller says her daughter goes to a college that teaches the Bible is wrong and evolution is true. How does the student pass her tests if she disagrees?
1: Well, um, be as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And so I had some sons who went to USC. They're deeply committed to Christ. And so when asked on a given position, they would say, Well, the view that our teacher, that our professor propagates is, and they state what the professor wants to hear, what that person's view is. Now, if the uh, teacher also gives them an opportunity to go beyond that and to give their view, then they have an opportunity for testimony, even if it costs them a grade. And there, I hate to say it, but there are professors like that who, you know, because you are a Christian, you are persecuted for it. Why does man want to obliterate the creation of Adam and Eve? Why does man want millions and millions of years? You, You can't be a theistic evolutionist and believe that God used the process of evolution to create the world and be a true biblicist. You are defying doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. The Bible clearly states that death entered into the world through sin. So now you have death and disease and uh, all kinds of things ever before the fall of man. When the Bible is very clear, that's a result of the fall. You totally undermine Paul's argument in Romans 5 for a one-on-one correspondence. Just as sin entered into the world and death spread to all men, even so Christ's death, the person of one life, namely the God-man Christ, provided a way of escape for all people that one act could affect all in both cases. Now You have to receive that act. Uh, by faith, Paul will go on to argue, so it's not a perfect parallel. But when Christ died, he didn't die for some or most or just the elect. He died for everyone. That's what the Bible affirms. So, wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. State what the professor is asking. If the professor's question is, but also you are free to give your view of this, then you can give your assessment. Um, and it may cost you great. grade, uh, but that's sometimes the cost of following Jesus Christ. Well, very good. I've got about a minute left. Anything you want to promote? Well, there's always something to promote. If you don't have a church home, we would invite you to Community Bible Church. We have our fall festival coming up on the last Sunday night in October on the 26th. We usually attract a few thousand people to this event. There's hayrides, bonfires, games for the kids. It's for grandparents. It's for people with no children. You could be 80 and have a great time. You could be a young couple. It's a wonderful alternative to uh, Halloween for a lot of families as we celebrate God's goodness. And the following Sunday, the first Sunday in November, we have Friend Day Community Bible Church. And if you don't have a church home or if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, you should definitely come that Sunday. Thanks for being with us today. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.